First Ignite, artificial intelligence software built for the modern tech transfer office. The First Ignite AI platform helps streamline tech transfer activities, including disclosures, non-confidential summaries, and identifying licensing partners while providing the professional contact information of over 180 million professionals, turbocharging your office's marketing activities. Get started for free at firstignite.com. You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. In under a year, AI and machine learning has gone from a subject in the far corners of university research labs to the lead story of every news organization in the world. AI and machine learning has the ability to be a transformative tool for technology transfer offices with the potential to automate back office tasks, generate content for marketing, sort through market research, and yes, potentially craft license agreements. Joining us today to discuss how his office has integrated AI into their day-to-day is Mark Saddam. Mark serves as Vice President of Technology Opportunities and Ventures at New York University. Prior to joining NYU, Mark was Vice Provost for Innovation and New Ventures at the University of New Hampshire. At UNH, Mark helped the university achieve a number six ranking in innovation impact amongst mid-sized universities, founded the Entrepreneurship Center, was principal investigator of the iCorp site, and built an internationally recognized program in the commercialization of digital and creative works. Mark has experience as a chief operating officer of a university spinout and associate director of life sciences for UNC Chapel Hill as well as currently serving as an advisor to Veracity Capital. Mark previously served on the Autumn Board of Directors from 2015 to 2016 as a Vice President for Professional Development, responsible for Autumn's education and training activities, and was the Chair of Autumn in 2020. Welcome, Mark. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Good to be back. Yeah, well, we're going to be talking all things AI and machine learning today. And uh, on that subject, I wanted to ask you, you know, AI and machine learning, they've rapidly transitioned from the periphery of research labs to being the lead story in news organizations just about every day now. What makes AI and machine learning such a transformative tool for tech transfer offices? I think there's there's two ways to think about AI, and I'll just say AI instead of AI and machine learning, just uh, to keep it shorter. One is the technologies that we're getting in from other people and the applications of uh, understanding the applications of AI in healthcare, in computer software, in um, gathering and, and, and collating information in some pretty massive ways. And all of our offices across the world are starting to see new ideas come in that use AI. Um, so we have to understand it at least. The other side is using it as a tool to make things better and easier. And 
you know, I think all of us understand that the work is never going to slow down. There's never going to be less to do. And I think one of the transformative features of AI is to take some long-held processes that tech transfer offices have done that we've drowned under um, and not had, you know, generally not been able to staff up to deal with it uh, effectively and use these tools to do more work quicker. And, and when we'll talk a little bit about what I'm doing at NYU, but we've already seen massive returns from a pretty small investment in AI um, that will allow us, I think, to scale into the foreseeable future without adding too much extra headcount. Wow, that's exciting. Um, but before we get to that, I did want to ask you, you know, everyone's always concerned about data privacy and security when it comes to using AI. Tell us a little bit about how NYU addresses these data privacy concerns, especially when you're working with private instance of chat GPT. And tell us what measures you have in place to ensure compliance. Yeah, so that's it. That's I'm glad you asked that first because that was the first thing <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. So, so just for folks listening to this, if they haven't really dug in on on the AI, there are there are the public instances of AI, whether you're using Bard or ChatGPT or there's a Perplexity.ai. There's lots of different applications of it that are in the public. And understand that anything that you put in there is generally speaking going to be used to train the model. So whatever you put in, it's not just you don't get your answer out, but you, you it goes in there and whether it's Google or Microsoft or Perplexity, they're using the things that you put in to better train the answer. So nothing is confidential. So if you're in tech transfer, where most of what we deal with is proprietary or confidential, at least in the beginning, you can't use those tools for this kind of work. And I'll loop back around how you might be able to use those tools um, to do some some uh, back office operations in a second. At NYU Langone, um, so again, for folks that don't know, I, I, I run tech transfer for NYU and also NYU Langone Health. And, so, and that's a distinction that I want to make up front because NYU Langone Health is a healthcare system in New York City. And so... Our access to GPT came through the healthcare system because we are a massive healthcare institution uh, and, and we take care of hundreds of thousands of patients a year. And so we were looking at using these tools to improve the quality of care. And so I heard about having a private instance of GPT from our chief information officer. And when I first heard about it, I asked the question very quickly, what does it mean to have a private instance? And the response was, it's walled off from the world. So whatever we put in never leaves us. It's not used to train the model. It's, it only stays in our, in our view. And we could use it to, to look at PII and PHI, so uh, personal health information or personally identifiable information, which in healthcare are the two most important pieces of information to keep secure. And so once I understood that we had validated it and that the system we were using was good for PII, we good to use for PII and PHI, I knew there was nothing that we had in our in our systems that was any more important than that. So this was going to be good for us. And and so that's how uh, for again for those listening, if you want to use it to do some really core business tasks, you really have to have a private instance. My view is that that's going to happen. That's going to be much easier to access in the next six to nine months 
we, I believe, were the first healthcare institution to have a private instance. So we're a little bit ahead of everybody just in terms of time of use. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the potential applications of AI in the tech transfer office, because really the applications can be vast. And you alluded to this a little bit before about some of the back office tasks. You know, what specific areas have you used AI in in your own office and what impact have you seen? Yeah, so I think I I, I will say this up front. In a very short period of time, probably 18 months to two years, there won't be a single thing that we do that is not enabled by AI, period. That's incredible. So so we've been working with these tools for about six months, which doesn't seem like a lot of time, but the progress that we've made is pretty, pretty dramatic. So I'll start, I'll, I'll start and just give an example of a project that we're doing, and then I'll layer on all the different things we're doing. So we started with, um, we'd had a need to do some compliance, to basically do an internal audit of our license agreements. Um, I had gotten to NYU about two and a half years ago. We have thousands of active license agreements. And the first question I always ask is, well, are we sure we got everything? Did we did we get all of our reports? Did, did our licensees meet all our obligations? Did we get all the money we were owed? Do we know how... Um, are, are our licensees in good standing? Or do we have people that we really should be talking about who have, who have breached agreements? So we got a, uh, we hired someone to be a compliance manager. And the idea was, he's a recent grad of law school. And the idea was, we thought in a one calendar year or a fiscal year that he could go through the previous three fiscal years. So it would take him one year to look at three years of license agreements. And that we thought that would be great. Maybe over three years, he would get to 10 years of license agreements. And that's probably what, you know, where, where, where all the juice was and that that would be reasonable. So we did it for about six weeks, and this was concurrent with our knowledge that we had this instance of GPT that we might be able to access. And being on the on the younger side and creative, his name's John Curie. John said, "Can I use GPT to try to do my job?" I was, I said, "Absolutely, you know, go with it, figure it out." Um, I don't, I just let him go and said, "Just go play and come back when you have something interesting." So about three weeks later. He came back and said, I've rewritten these prompts and I'm able to now extract information out of a license agreement. Okay, that's pretty interesting. About two weeks later, he came back and said, I've done the first fiscal year. So in in five weeks and really only two weeks using the tool, he had completed a year's worth of work. And within 60 days, he had done through the three years. So effectively, two months after starting to understand how to use this tool, he had done the job that we thought it would take him a year to do. Now we've, it's been another four months. He's basically gone back six fiscal years and, you know, within a, just a month or so, he'll, he'll have gone back, you know, 10 or, I mean, now we're just saying go back as far as you can for yeah. every act of agreement. It's incredible the impact. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, the marginal cost to do the extra work is almost zero at this point. And so for that project, right out of the gate, we found, a million and a half dollars of obligations that we were owed just in the first three fiscal years. And so again, for people listening to this, when you think, oh, I don't know how to do this or I can't afford it or how am I going to justify it? I guarantee that you will make more money than it costs you, regardless of what that calculation is for your institution. If you need 20, you're going to get, you know, a hundred because these, because our license agreements are complex and there's, 
there are missed obligations and missed opportunities. So, you know, in two months worth of effort, we found a million and a half dollars. We've since found another another half million pretty easy and we're going back. And I, I, I don't ask for a daily count, but my my expectation is if we go back through all of our license agreements, that we'll find somewhere between three and five million dollars of obligations that we're owed. Now you got to collect it and that's a different story. But, you know, but in terms of compliance, we had no idea what was what was owed and not owed. And within short order, we were able to do that. So that's that's the more detailed story that I that I wanted to tell. But once we started to understand how powerful this tool was, we then basically took the whole office and said, find every use case you can imagine. And so now we've so we have a compliance audit. We're doing a financial audit with them. Uh, we use it to. We're looking at ways to have GPT draft our first uh, agreements. So literally, just putting in terms in a table and having it draft the agreements itself. We've started to look at it, doing a compare and contrast between two agreements. So rather than you get a license agreement and you sit down and you think about, all right, I got to read this thing from front to back. You can actually upload your original draft and the the return draft and say, tell me what the difference is between these two things, which is a huge time saver. Yeah, Lisa, I know you, you, this is part of what you what you do, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, how many times have you hovered over an email saying, I don't want to read this because I don't know how much work this is. And, you know, in order to, to, to take 30 seconds and ask AI, tell me what's in this that that is different. And it gives you a really beautiful summary. So. You know, maybe you find out actually in in short order, maybe this is only an hour's worth of work, so I can knock this off rather than waiting three days to get to it and finding out that it was only an hour's worth of work. So um, we even had some people using it to write their own performance reviews, which I thought was really cool. That's really creative. They took the the goals that we set out last year, they listed what they had done and basically said, write me a performance review. This is these were my goals and this is what I accomplished. And and ninety what the people that did it said ninety percent of the review was perfect, and then they just added they went over it and added their own stuff. That's really interesting. And Mark, you've already alluded that the potential applications of AI in tech transfer offices is vast. How can AI automate some of the back office tasks, and what are the specific areas where it's making a substantial impact in your own office? So th- this is a place where. Let's let's skip the private instance and go to the publicly available tools. This is this is a place where the publicly available tools are great. Because if you think about evaluating a technology, you're often not saying, you know, what is the value of this specific gene editing tool to the universe? That's your job to figure out what it's worth. But when you're doing a market analysis, you just want to say, what is the total market size for these gene, you know, this gene editing tool, right? You know, it might have taken you four to six hours of work, uh, I, I really strongly uh, recommend perplexity.ai as a search tool because it's kind of like the AI-enabled Google at this point where not only does it give you an answer, but it actually gives you references to where it pulled the data from. So you can go to the primary sources and determine it itself because um, we'll probably talk about hallucinations in some at some point. But you can actually validate the data yourself. So if you see something that you're not sure of, it gives you this is where I pulled it. That's where I pulled this data from. So I like that as a tool. And you know, Microsoft and Bar- and Google are putting their own versions of this together. So we're in sort of a scary hazy point right now. Or finding the guardrails for the publicly available systems are still not great. 
but I, but I do think it's just, this is a blip in time and it's actually going to resolve itself relatively quickly. So you can go to these publicly available tools and say, what is the, what is the total growth of the market for diabetic retinopathy in the United States in 2020 or, you know, 2024, and you'll get an answer. And that answer can, you know, so going from three to five years to having to buy market data reports to just literally picking up your picking up your phone and verbally asking it, tell me what this is to get this these tools. It's just speeding everything up dramatically. And you mentioned um, accuracy, and that's my next question for you, because data quality and accuracy are extremely important in tech transfer, as you well know, Mark. So how has AI and machine learning improved the quality of data and information management within your office? And what strategies have you employed to ensure this data accuracy? Yeah, that's a good, it's a great question. So the, the answer to all things AI is, this does not remove the human. And you can't just assume that the outputs are perfect. Now, I'll, again, I'll, I'll use that private versus public instance in a second, but these are tools to make people's lives easier and better. They are not tools to replace you. In fact, one of the things that I talked to the office about when I said, let's go ahead and everybody use these tools was, this is no one's going to lose their job through using these tools. You're just actually going to take the things that you don't like, and we're going to automate them. And that's going to give you more time to think. So when you're trying to look at the data, in the beginning, you really have to scrutinize the data, you have to make sure that the outputs are correct. You can't just assume that the first thing you put in leads to exactly what the outputs are. So even in the private instances that we use, we always when we create a, a prompt, and we can talk about how to generate a prompt if you want to, um, when we create a prompt, which is basically asking, directing the tool to give you an output, once we, you, and you do have to iterate, it might take you two or three hours to find the right verbiage on the prompt to get the output that you want, we then create QC tools for that prompt. So in our license compliance extraction tool, we have a set of 10 license agreements that we use. That's our QC tool. So every time the system changes or they update the software, we rerun the prompt on those 10 agreements and we look at the outputs. And if the outputs are identical to the old outputs, then we say, okay, whatever they did didn't really adjust the prompts. What happens a lot is you'll actually see it wobble a little bit. And you'll see the outputs show up a little bit differently. Then you have to go back and rewrite the prompt a little bit until it gives you the outputs that you expected the first time. So every time you create a tool, a prompt, to do work for you, you have to then create a QC set so that you can ensure accuracy. One thing that's, one thing that's really interesting about this concept called hallucinations which it, if you understand how AI really works, it's basically a giant decision tree. All it's doing is taking in hundreds of billions of words of text that, that, that it's scrubbed from different situations and giving you a percent likelihood of what the next possible word is. So, you know, the, the, it might, there might be 10 possible next, next words in a particular sentence. And all it's doing is saying, what's the next word? What's the next word? What's the next word? But it's doing a billion calculations a second, right? So when, when, a, when a tool hallucinates, what really happens is somewhere as it's doing, you know, if you have a 10-word sentence, it's a billion calculations, a billion calculations, a billion calculations as it fills in the 10 words in the sentence. If it picks the 10th most likely choice on word three, 
you might fork off and then the next choices all sort of go offline. And that's what a hallucination really is. It's just making a guess that guess was wrong. And then you keep correct. You keep basically, <laughs> you keep getting worse and worse because the first word was wrong. So then every subsequent word was wrong. So that is only relevant for the publicly available stuff. In a private instance, done properly, hallucinations don't actually really happen that much, if at all. And, and the reason why is because the algorithm that predicts, um, the, the AI algorithm that predicts the outputs or that generates the outputs, if you fix the inputs and say, only look at these inputs, and you fix the outputs, and that's what your prompt does. It says, take, read these inputs and create an output that gives me this exact information. You're restricting the inputs and you're restricting the outputs. And it, I don't want to say it doesn't hallucinate because then people would feel like, oh, I can trust this. I don't have to think about it. But in our experience, 99% of the time, the output is exactly as you would expect. It's the, the way I've described it to people is imagine if you took the page rank algorithm for Google and you said, I want to buy a size 11 uh, tan men's Chelsea boot size 3E. You can tell that's what I wear. And you, you, and you go to the internet and you say, find me this boot, right? You're going to, Google will, will give you a response and you're going to get 200 links. You're going to have some sponsored links. You're going to have, and not every one of them is going to be what you want. Some of them will be four links from the same site, right? But it's also looking at billions and billions of web pages to try to deliver back what you want. If you could take that same page rank algorithm and say, and limit it what it searched to only online shoe retailers, the result you would get would probably be perfect right out of the gate. The first link would be the right link every time. And that's kind of, that's the analogy for AI is if you restrict those inputs and restrict those outputs, there's really only so many permutations that it's going to give you. And you can, you can, it's much more trustworthy. So you talked a lot about prompts and QC. So let's take us back a little bit. You know, when you were starting to institute AI into your office, how did you go about training your staff to effectively use these technologies in their roles? And how do you think other tech transfer offices can do the same? So I think first, first is being able to accept a little bit of risk and to accept the fact that there's going to be an investment in human resources. Like you're going to have to tell people are going to have to find the time to use the tools and figure out how it works. So I'm very much willing if somebody wants to try to do something different, I just go do it, go do it, come back and tell me, tell me what it is. So when John Keery wanted to use these tools, I didn't know it was going to come out, but he was enthusiastic about it. And I just said, you know, you still have your job to do, but you know, go play and see what happens. And you know, he came back with such interesting results so quickly. I just kept encouraging him to keep going. On one hand, make, saying, make sure you don't lose what you're doing on a day to day basis, but, you know, continue to push these tools. And so in John, we had kind of the evangelist in the office. And I think that's what everybody needs is the person who really is excited about it, who can learn it, who can be the, the flagpole, the tent pole around which the rest of the staff can go for help. We were very fortunate in that our IT department also was really aggressively looking at these tools. So we had some technical support from our IT department to help guide us on those first steps. But, you know, we probably invested a couple of months of time 
with different people learning how to use the tools, learning how to write the prompts. It's kind of like learning a foreign language. You, you know, learn the beats of yep. what of what gets the what gets the results out. But I think, you know, what I said to everybody was go play and find something productive. And and actually the advice I gave everybody was what's the part of your job you hate the most? And automate that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because if you can remove you know, it, we all have repetitive tasks and we are, none of us really enjoy repetitive tasks. So if you could take a task that's repetitive and takes eight to 10 hours of your week, spend two weeks figuring out how to automate it to turn to, to change that eight to 10 hours a week into eight to 10 minutes a day, you've already, you know, you've already answered your own question. And so that, that was kind of what we did. And it, it did really kind of snowball because then people, you know, different people, John would help somebody write a prompt for a different task that would bear fruit. Then people would get excited. We did our own prompt. We called it a prompt-a-thon, which are, <laughs> prompt-a-thon. With our, That's hilarious. With our, yeah. With our IT department, which is again, wonderful. Uh, the guy's name is actually, he, he presented with us at the autumn East regional meeting, Yin Apinyanapongs, who's uh, part of the IT department. He, he's excited about it too. So we just got everybody in a room for a couple of hours and had them play around with the tools so that everybody could kind of teach everybody else what to do. And, and now it really is, it's probably been three months. It's just part of what we do. If we have a task, somebody's always working on a prompt to make their life easier. We just, somebody just told me the other day that they think they've created a prompt that can generate the UBMTA and just be done. So like, don't, you know, like don't even have to do anything. You just take an email, it scrapes the email, pulls the information, the UBMTA sends it right back out again. That's that's amazing. I mean, it's incredible how quickly your office has taken to it. And, you know, we hear every day in the news how AI is rapidly evolving. And so what are you doing in your office to keep everybody up to date to make sure that, you know, the AI strategies that you're employing um, not only are effective, but also remain compliant over time? Yeah, that's where we rely pretty heavily on our on our IT department. There, and again, this is the advantage of being in a healthcare system is if it's good enough for the treatment of patients, we are very much a more relaxed environment. So, so our IT department is really responsible for making sure that everything is going on. But for us, we're just, we're kind of behind the wall. So we're doing it for our own purposes. The, uh, what I've told everybody is, you know, please use these tools. But in the end, you're still as a, as a person accountable for the output. So if you rely on an AI tool, and it's wrong, you can't blame the tool because your job is to look over it and make sure it's okay. So in terms of compliance, as long as we're using a private instance, and we're not really, you know, we're not accidentally releasing anything in the public domain or, or using our, our proprietary information and, and giving it away, which we shouldn't do anyway. They're really, I'm not really that worried about compliance because there, there's a system above us that sort of keeps everything in check. But, and even still, we're really just using business processes for the most part. So we're not asking it to draft a patent application, for example, but that's coming. You know, someone will eventually do that. And, you know, that's actually pretty great. You know, that, that democratizes some of the outputs. Um, we're starting to look at different ways. There's, there's new tools coming out where we actually, um, believe that we can use uh, some new tools that are going to be released by OpenAI to actually do finance with them. Because right now, AI is not really great with numbers, um, but they're creating a tool that's really great with numbers. So we could do an audit, a financial audit and a balance sheet and, and have it run directly using a tool. So it, it 
again, my goal for at NYU is to double the outputs of the office in five years. And from the time I started a couple of years ago, people kind of looked at me funny. But I actually think we probably can come close to doing that without adding too much additional headcount. Sounds like you're well on your way, that's for sure. And, you know, that's interesting that you should mention headcount because AI is often, you know, associated with the potential for job displacement we hear about in the news all the time. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, you told your team, you know, no one's going to lose their job. And I think you said, you know, this is giving you more time to think. What are your thoughts um, when it comes to the concern that's frequently raised about job displacement and AI? I think it's overblown. Um, and I do tell the team a lot that these are my view of, a, of, of, the, of these tools is it gives everybody an executive assistant, which I'm sure all of us wish we, you know, we had one. Right. So but but you you have a tool that can take some of the heavy lifting out of your job. So a phrase I use a lot in the office is our goal is to have computers do what computers do and humans do what humans do. And so summarization, organization, linear tasks that computers are just better at, right? I mean, nobody nobody gets a tea table out anymore to do accounting. You open Excel. Nobody, you think of, if you roll back through the years of all these things that were supposed to displace people from from Excel to the person, you know, the personal computer to a typewriter. Every time there's a technological change, people say, oh, this is going to be the end. And it actually doesn't do that. It, it usually improves the efficiency of, of a task. Um, so we still need to think. And, I, and my view is that these tools will take some of the rote tasks away, leaving more time to just do thoughts. I'll give a great example in a tech transfer perspective. So we, um, many offices, at least half of the licensing out of an office is a non-exclusive, are non-exclusive licenses. So you might have a mouse model or a cell line or a piece of software that you're going to license five or 10 times a year. And they make it, it. But even if it's a non-exclusive license, you still have to do all this work. It's still going to take you a couple days to figure it out and populate it and send it out. And do all, You can completely automate that now. So the next non-exclusive license literally takes zero human effort to put out. So that gives you a couple days, you know, a half a day of time that you might have otherwise just wanted to get that thing perfect. It's removed that and it would leave us all more time to license the heavy stuff, the platform technologies, the deep tech, the, the, the heavy IP technologies. It gives you more time. If you can do better market research, it means you can create a strategy around how to license something versus a shotgun and sticking it up on the website and hoping it works out. It, so it, I think it, what it's, what it's going to do is specifically for tech transfer is it's going to refine some of these tasks that have been really heavy lifts, which is the reason why people say, oh, I don't have enough time to market my technologies. Well, if it takes you six or eight hours to think about it and then figure out how you're going to market it, yeah, you probably don't have time to market everyone. If it takes you six minutes, you actually do have the time to think about it and market everyone. So it, it, it to me is just the latest version of, oh no, technology is coming for my job. But when is the last time you went to the library and picked out an encyclopedia, right? Uh, I think it was in fifth grade, maybe. Right. And exactly. I can remember when people said, no, Wikipedia, no one will use the internet for facts. That's crazy talk. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. Well, Mark, I want you to pull out your crystal ball here for a second, um, because I want to ask you, 
What trends and opportunities do you foresee in the continued integration of AI in tech transfer offices? And what advice can you provide to professionals who are navigating this ever-evolving landscape? So one is a project that I'll give a little tease here. Um, because it was once I started to understand the power of what these tools could do, we're we're, we're nearly finished with it. Is um, at, and at NYU we're going to kill the disclosure. Really, that's interesting. So we're and when I say that, it doesn't mean we're not going to do invention innovation disclosures. It means we're going to take all of the labor out of doing an innovation disclosure, which our faculty don't like and our staffs don't like. But we're actually cr- using tools where we're going to ask the faculty, instead of filling out the disclosure form, we're going to say, just give us your paper, give us your publication, because these GPT-4 especially can take a a scientific graph and interpret it for you. And it's very accurate. So all we're going to say is, give us what you have written already. Don't give us any, you know, you can write a summary, but just give us your pre-publication, give us your paper that you present and give us your poster. We're going to turn that into the answers to the disclosure. We're going to take the second half of the disclosure, all the questions about who, where does this fit? What's the competition? What's the market? We're going to create another prompt that's going to pull all that information out from the publicly available sources. Use a chat bot to answer the rest of the questions in the middle so people aren't doing it. We'll actually send a response with a draft thing and a chat bot and say, well, we have a couple more questions for you. And then basically the faculty will answer a few more questions just to get some granularity out of it. And it'll spit the disclosure and say, please review and sign if, if accurate. So we'll, we'll have, yeah, so that like just that saves countless, I mean, I think of it as a, as a customer service aspect for our faculty is if we can take the disclosure process, which none of them enjoy and make it into an upload a file and answer three minutes worth of questions in a chat bot, they're going to do it and we're going to get more disclosures and it's not going to be kind of a pain. If we can take the second half of that, which might have taken two or three days for somebody to dig through all the questions and think of the work and pull in it out front and provide the faculty researcher with a com- much with a 90% complete disclosure form, that first discussion you have with them becomes a conversation and not just checking boxes to make sure you understand everything. So I think that that's that and that's coming and that by the time the annual meeting comes around, we'll probably be ready to release that and and share it with everybody so that other people can use the tool for themselves. That's that's one. Um, We're also working on something where we believe in the next four to six months, we'll be able to talk to the database. So literally like, hey, Siri, but actually Siri is our database and not our, that's not the name of our database. I was going to say, you'd have some trouble if it were Siri. If it were Siri, yeah. But but to be able to go and use voice prompts to ask the database to, to collect information for you. So now you don't even necessarily have to log into your database. You can say, hey, you know, tell me when, you know, agreement X between parties Y and Z, what was the royalty rate? I forget. And it'll be able to spit out a royalty rate. So I think that, you know, again, how widely disseminated is that going to be? Probably a couple of years, but we're we're playing around with it a little bit now. Uh, it'll take some time. The, but if you look in the future, I think what it's going to do is it's going to increase the sophistication of what, what we all do and probably actually bridge some of the gap between industry and university, because there is a there is a lot. I think the challenges that that our partners, our uh, our industry colleagues, have with universities is there's information asymmetry. 
Like they know a lot more about a particular aspect than we do because it's really hard to collect the right information. But with these tools, you can actually maybe get 90% of the information from publicly available sources, leading to better offers, better license, you know, less licensed terms that are much more close. And then again, make that conversation more about peers, right? And we both see, we have the same information. We're looking at this the same way. And we're really just in a discussion about how do we share value. So I see that coming. Yeah, you're closing an information gap that you traditionally had now. Right. And then I just see, and we've said as a healthcare system that we don't think there's going to be a single piece of text that doesn't run through AI in the next couple of years. And I, I just think you have to look at it like that's the way it's going, is it's going to become an, a ubiquitous tool, not like the internet, more like your cell phone, where something, it's just a part of your life that you don't even really think about anymore. And think about how many times you pick up your phone a day to ask it to do tasks that 10 years ago were incomprehensible. I think that's where we're headed. There's a lot, I'm obviously very bullish on AI. There's a lot of things that we have to be careful of in terms of making sure we don't hand over uh, the responsibility to a computer. But honestly, the potential is so great, particularly in healthcare and the ability to combine images and molecular diagnostics and patient records and treatment paths where you're just going to be able to process so much information so quickly that we'll be able to, we're we're soon going to be able to do things that humans just simply can't do. And that's going to improve patient lives. And so that's the part, big picture outside of the tech transfer office that it's, it's just so exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. And it's going to happen really quickly, it seems like, based on just what your office has been able to achieve in the last few months. And so we're really excited to hear more once we get to the annual meeting in February. Yeah. So just to let everybody know, the plan is that NYU is going to take all these tools as we will probably have eight to 10 tools. uh, And we're going to collaborate with Autumn to provide those tools to the tech transfer community for free. So we're going to figure out a way to, to, you know, how do we distribute them and how do we license them? They're going to be for academic tech transfer offices, medical centers, and nonprofits. It'll probably require you to come to NYU's uh, website and license them through our online licensing platform. But, you know, our goal was to be at the front of this, to be on the vanguard of, of applying these tools in ways that are useful. And as somebody who up until two years ago worked in a very small office at the University of New Hampshire, you know, I think I, I have that small office mindset with the ability to execute with a with an office with more resources. So as we're creating this, we're, we're going to probably, I mean, the intent is that we're going to have eight to 10 prompts with, this is a description of the prompt. Here's actually the code. You, here's the prompt itself and how you run it. Here's how you look at the outputs. It's going to be a, and do it yourself. And we're not responsible for what happens to it after we release it. But basically, put it in a format that any office could be able to take those in and just get to work and know that we did the heavy lifting behind it, that it's a good head start. Maybe it's 80, 85% of the way of, of where it needs to be for your particular university. But, you know, we'll share the labor because I, honestly, it, it will make all tech transfer offices so much better that we just want to have everybody have these tools because we found them so amazing. Yeah, and that's huge, right? Like you said, the smaller offices, people are one, two, three tech transfer professionals who are just overloaded with things to do. That's that's going to be huge for those offices. Yes, and that's that's what I think about is 
can an office that has two people that feels like it can't really do the job well with some of these tools, could it actually do a great job? Because it's knocking out all those, all the busy work that is required and necessary, but just takes up time that you don't have to really try to take advantage of the technology, which is our job is to get ideas into, into the market. Our job is not to do paperwork. It requires a lot of paperwork to get ideas into the market, but we'd rather spend it on the, on the transaction than on the paperwork. Well, Mark, we really look forward to hearing more about these tools in the future. And thank you so much for your time today. This has been really valuable to get your insights in terms of what your office is doing to harness the power of AI. Yeah, thank you. Be sure to join us next week for part two of our AI series to learn more about how your office can utilize this tool to stay ahead of the curve. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us.